Hello and welcome to The Film File, your friendly neighbourhood film geeks presenting your friendly neighbourhood film geek show. Roll music, look happy, here we come. Yes, this is The Film File and we're back, as are you, to join us for, I'd like to say an hour, but I know <laughs> it'll be much more than that. Of film news, film fun, with us, your friendly neighbourhood film geeks. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And as ever, you're part of this wonderful and rich film community. A family, if you may. Come, join us on this journey. Bit of a dysfunctional family. <laughs> a dysfunctional family. It's like modern family for film geeks. We haven't seen half of you for ages, and I hope you're going to come and visit us at Christmas. Yeah, pop round. Bring, bring, bring something to eat, because I can't afford that yeah. much. I don't know if you can get there because of petrol, but do your best. <laughs> oh, man, this petrol crisis that isn't really a petrol crisis, but it's become a petrol crisis because people hear the word crisis and panic and turn it into a crisis. Man, one, for those elsewhere in the world listening, like Salt Lake City. Hi, Salt Lake City. We love you out there. Hi, Salt Lake City. <laughs> and if you don't know the context of that, listen to last week's show. Uh, BP are the only ones who are struggling because they can't get drivers for their deliveries. And yet it's been reported in the media in kind of like, oh, no, panic at the pumps, which has got people obviously panicking at the pumps. And so Shell, every every other brand, Texaco, whatever, I've all seen people racing to load up jerry cans, fill up wagons, that drink some of it so they can spit it out into their cars as they get home. I don't know. People are just panicking <laughs> at the pumps. And it's just ridiculous. If this is just the... The media can be held responsible to some degree because they've really like gone crazy with it. But let's be honest. It's the dumbass public (laughs) who are the real ones to blame. The ones who read a headline and don't read the actual report. And so react to the headline. This is why we're in this situation with this. This is why we've got Brexit. And this is why people get angry at Scorsese. So just don't (laughs) listen to headlines. This is an ongoing theme with us. Don't listen to headlines. But aside from that. Well, aside from that, (laughs) I'm going to carry on because I, I was listening to the radio in the car to work. Uh, it was either Thursday or a Friday morning, I forget which. Uh, and I've got quite a distance, a good hour and a bit drive into into where I work. So I rely on, on the car, rely on petrol. And I heard uh, the news item saying some, and the, the, the guy on, on BBC Radio said, only some uh, petrol stations aren't getting petrol. And at that point, Spider-Sense started tingling because I thought, <laughs> you've just said shortage of petrol for some pumps. All yep. it takes now is for some Egypt on social media to suddenly start spreading that there's uh, that there's no petrol, and yeah, well, clearly, how prophetic of me because uh, yet twenty four hours later, people were were queuing at petrol stations. Local petrol station to me, as I drove past it yesterday, uh, was closed down because they'd run out of petrol. Now, you clearly the the thing is that the, all those people who filled the jerry cans, who filled their car up, and as you said, drank it to spit it out later. All of those, all the crazes above. At least in the next couple of days, it will kind of return to some normality because they've already done that. And, yeah. they, and hopefully they're under the recognition how dumbasses they are. I mean, this is this is the supermarket um, shortages all over again, yeah. isn't it? When people panic bought toilet rolls and loaded up with like 400 toilet rolls. I mean, how much do you go to the toilet in a year? Because that's ridiculous. And then supermarkets are just like, guys, we restock the shelves. 
every day. Stop panicking. You think <laughs> they'd have learned? I remember going. To, we we do a supermarket shop on on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I fill up twice a I fill up yeah twice a week uh, with petrol and uh, and I usually run it down low before I before I do that. I don't keep topping it up. I know you're supposed to, but I don't. Yeah. But that's just me. Do you know where the, the uh, toilet paper thing came from? It no. was because Australia, yes, Australia. Hi, Australia, <laughs> if you listen. Um, they get most of their toilet paper from China. So at the beginning of the pandemic, that's why they, there was some concerns, not, not a panic, some concerns that they weren't going to get toilet paper because they get it from, uh, they got it from China. And that's why some dope in some part of the country is going, there's going to be no toilet paper crisis in the world and, and that's why because they read some other dope on social media who quoted some other dope and not bothered looking into the facts it drives me to despair so i am uh, in hospital this week and i am going on the train but my good lady was going to come and pick me up uh, after after my surgery but now she doesn't know she can get to me because she doesn't know she can get petrol. Yeah. So it's the knock on effect because uh, some brain dead somewhere uh, has, has read something on social media and now created a panic, which there wasn't a panic yeah. before. I, I, it just, I don't know whether to laugh or cry, Andy. I really don't. And you think the world is moving on into a, into a better place. You know, I thought we were going to be living in Gene Roddenberry's future at one point. But clearly not. We're in the <laughs> no, we're in the dark ages, and social media is really anti-social media. Anyway, yeah, it's it's it could be a very negative place. Uh, th this week is also um, I've had two bits of bad news this oh, week. Oh no, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, the first one is that my tablet, uh, my Tab Five E, which I absolutely adored, uh, broke. Oh, rest in peace, Tab. Um, I, I, I mean, to be fair, it was my own fault. Uh, I. I mean, I'm very good with, with all electrical equipment. I mean, my phone that I've got still, this is four years old and still mint condition. It's middle ages, my man. <laughs> I don't break things. I take good care of them. Yeah, me too. But I have this silly habit of in the early hours of the morning when I can't sleep, I'll be watching something on TV while vegging out on the couch and reading magazines or comics on my tablet. And I've fallen asleep with my tablet in my hand, which obviously the cover, the protective case was open. So at some point that's fallen down and then fallen onto the floor and it's been lying at an angle because it landed on the edge of one of my shoes then i woke up about half past four in the morning i know morning, where this is going looked, spoilers looked and went oh i could probably do with going to bed spun myself off the couch leapt up and heard a crunch looked down to see that my heel was right in the middle of the screen Ouch. and there was cracks all the way to the edge and just like oh <laughs> my tablet now to be fair i had four more months left on paying this tablet off as part of the contract i was due an upgrade anyway it just means that I've now upgraded early. And I, did I go for the next model up? No. Did I go for the next model up from that? No. Did I go for the most recent one for a ridiculous amount of money? Yeah, of course I did. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I thought, uh, uh, to spoil your story a little bit, I thought you were going to say, no, I'm going to stick with the tablet that I've, I've had because it was a trusted friend. But no. I've stuck with the mic. I, 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 mean, I, I stand firmly alongside Samsung as all my electrical mobile devices. Um, I love the devices. I think that the interface is fantastic and I found them reliable, unless you stand on them. Yeah, I think uh, so for I've, most I've got, technology, I've got the, um, that's a downer. I've got the 7 Plus 5G edition and it's a, oh, it's a thing of beauty. So there is some good news out of all that, but um, it is costing me more per month. 
but it's beautiful. And the other bit of bad news was, uh, have you seen that um, the Doctor Who showrunner has been announced? Yeah, Russell T. Davis. Now, this wasn't on my uh, bingo cards of uh, of, uh, of returning writers to a famous British science fiction series. I can understand why they've done it, though. Yeah, th- there's been all the negativity ever since he left. Every other showrunner that's come in, they've always said, oh, it was better when Russell T. Davis did it. It was better when Russell T. Davis did it. It wasn't. It was trite. It was ridiculous. It was deus ex machina. Unless it's the first season of Russell T. Davis's run when Christopher Eccleston was in it. It's not that good. David Tennant was a great doctor in some terrible, terrible seasons. Yeah. But people have that nostalgic memory of how good, um, how good Russell T. Davis brought it back and how David Tennant was, that they think that Russell T. Davis is the perfect showrunner. I'm not excited for this at all because I can just see him bringing back his usual... You know, everything just becomes, oh, oh, we're building up to something big. And then he just pulls it out of his back end on the final episode, making no sense to anything that came before with wibbly wobbly, timely wimey and flip switches, flip switches as the only, only resolutions to things. I don't get his storytelling ideas. I don't get his whole design. And I don't like his, his ego. You saw him in the interviews once he got to like the third series that he was show running. And he said, like, oh, whenever people criticize me, they're just ming mongs. And he was he was just like, you're not listening to any constructive criticism. You just basically think that you're it and nothing else. I don't dig him. I've loved the eras over the recent years. I've lo- I mean, I, I got to meet uh, Chibnall a few years ago at the Premier Night at uh, Sheffield. And I got chatting to him and he loved Doctor Who. He loved my era of Doctor Who. And I can see that reflected in the past few years with Jodie Whittaker, that he's tapped into what I love about Doctor Who. So, you know, I'm a bit disappointed that Chibnall's moving on. I'm more disappointed that people haven't embraced what Chibnall brought to it. And I think that people just constantly going back to what Russell T. Davis did is a bad move. I know why they're doing it. I know that they want to go to safe ground and try to get the the viewing figures back up for the general audience. But for a Whovian like me, I'm not digging it. I'm, I'm in t- not to say total agreement. I'm in some agreement. I agree with all your critiques of, of, of Davis as a writer. Uh, I'm thinking that he's probably moved on as a writer. The, the stuff he's done post Doctor Who has been some of the strongest writing he's ever uh, done. Um, I think I can understand the BBC mentality because the, the viewing figures have, have slid off. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that is down to, uh, I don't think the public embraced uh, Peter Capaldi, who I absolutely adored as an actor and as a doctor. He was, yeah, and, he was marvellous. And I don't think the public have quite embraced um, the current doctor and and the gender change, even though it doesn't matter. She's so yeah. good in the role, Jodie Whittaker, and um, it just proves that whoever plays the doctor still always plays the doctor. They just yeah. bring gender or, in the, probably the next case, ethnicity into it. But it's it's always written as the Doctor, you know that bit never changes. Just uh, I think Chibnall had difficulties with with the bigger picture of what the story was trying to tell, and and had more misses than hits for me. I think he I think it felt like a lot of loose ideas which didn't always generate. There were some great episodes, don't get me wrong, uh, and it was saved. Everything was saved by Jodie Whittaker's performance. So I can see why they're doing it. Um, I'm always open. You know me. I'm always the optimist with these. Until I see the, the, the episodes, I will I will stand fire. I'm glad they didn't bring Moffat back because I think Moffat ran out of steam about halfway through. Yeah. And, and I would have rather have they've gone to someone like Jack Thorne to write it. Yeah. I think would have been a really interesting choice. But he's suddenly gone. 
gone through the roof as a writer. So, so long as they don't cast James Corden in the lead role as the Doctor, I'll, I'll probably still choose him. But if, <laughs> oh, if I'll always get, be if there. He gets connect, if he gets connected to the role, that's it, I'm done. I'll always <laughs> be there with Doctor Who. It's it's uh, it, it's lasted longer than than most of my relationships in my life, apart from with my parents. Yeah. Because when I was a kid, my dad introduced me to it during the Patrick Troughton years, even though I vaguely, vaguely remember it. I didn't really start remembering it until uh, John Pertwee. So it's been a constant, yeah. you know, and I'll always be there for Doctor Who, even if the Doctor's not always been there for me. It's been ba- It was Tom Baker for me. He was my Doctor as a child. Um, that was what I grew up loving. But enough of Doctor Who. <laughs> What's happening in this week's show? Well, we, as ever, have an action-packed, and I mean action-packed show for you. We will be giving you the news. We will be giving you reviews of such films as... Green Knight, Super Intelligence, The Starling, and I believe you've seen... A film that you haven't. Yes, this is a rarity. This is a rarity. (laughs) I'll be talking about The Many Saints of Newark. We'll also be giving you our look at this week's What If. Our deep dive this week is in to James Bond. Not one James Bond, not one film, but the whole 007 catalogue. Well as much as we can fit in. But before any of that, as ever, Andy Meakin, our own 00 agent, has sneaked his way into the internet to bring you all the gossip, budgets, rescheduling, casting in the item fondly known as the news. Okay, I'm going to kickstart the news by just saying, stop asking directors and actors about Marvel films when they're there to talk about any other things. Is this a repeat from last week? I'm just checking. We're just going to leave that there because more people have been asked this week and I'm getting sick of it. And whether they're saying they love Marvel films or they hate them, I don't care. Just stop asking them about them because they're not there to talk about Marvel films. You're an interviewer with five minutes to spend talking to someone. If you can't think of questions to fill that five minutes, you're in the wrong profession. <laughs> we managed to talk to a we managed to talk to a director of an independent film for forty five minutes and still had more questions that we could have asked him by the end of it about his inspirations, his material, and his film. Yeah, we never once asked him about. Marvel films, <laughs> not once. Yeah, he, d- he did. Uh, he did say on Twitter that he would have just turned around and just said, "Why are you asking me about Marvel?" So I just said, "Well, I'm going to ask you about DC instead in future." <laughs> but no, it, it, it's happening. I'm not going to tell you who's been reported this week because I'm just getting sick of reporting on it. Um, we're drawing a line under this now. Any actors or directors who talk about what they think about Marvel films, I don't care now, and we're not going to share it with you. So let's move on to some positive news. So the Bond, we're going to be talking about Bond later. The Bond pre-sales in the UK have apparently hit Avengers Endgame numbers. Fantastic. That's good Which shows that there's a huge desire to see the final outing from Daniel Craig on the big screen canvas. Uh, We're seeing it at our site. We're tracking each day, like, where the pre-bookings are coming. And as we're getting closer and closer to it, they're shooting up. So it is going to be a busy, busy weekend to come. And it's great. It's great news for the the franchise. It's great news for the final outing for Craig, and it's great news for the industry as a whole. Yeah, I mean, there is a there is a sense of a buzz about this movie, and I honestly think that a I think people are eager to come back to the cinema more so than they are to come back to gigs because I've I've noticed with with playing and uh, and just a few instances that I've heard of they're not quite as eager yet to get back into an auditorium with, with 20,000 other people. 
as say sport has but i think cinema has has found the happy medium of getting people back and at least i think the thing we've got with with cinemas is uh, for our city for instance you've got a choice of cinemas as well yeah so you can uh you can be in a situation where you go right okay i can i can i can choose a, a maybe a quieter cinema to go to so i'm i'm really happy i saw the new trailer for bond i super super psyched for it i'm hoping it delivers everything that that the promise of what it's going to deliver will do uh i think it's in a safe pair of hands with the director just just really really psyched to see a new bond and as as we said this was the first film to be pulled from its schedule way back early yeah. last year and we thought it was going to be a matter of months so it it's a, it feels like cinema's coming home if we can turn that into a song <laughs> please no because then it'll get played every four years even when it's no longer relevant uh, <laughs> to show that the confidence in cinema has uh, has started to come back Remember a few weeks ago when we said that Clifford the Big Red Dog had been pushed back to 2022 by Paramount? Yes, and, and there were there were grown men crying in the street. Yeah, well, good news or bad news, depending on your perspective, is Paramount have grown a set and actually moved it back to 2021. <laughs> November the 10th, 2021, it, to be exact. Well, there's a, there's a, there's an audience out there of, of, of middle-aged men who will, will be so happy by that news today. Little kids, on the other hand, not going to care. Yeah, little kids won't, won't know what... Clifford the Big Red Dog is. Uh, Darby Camp, Jack Whitehall, John Cleese and Tony Hale star in this adaptation of Norman Bridwell's beloved children's book. And apparently the film screened at the recent CinemaCon to a very positive reception, which makes me think that maybe they need to make sure no one's got any drugs or alcohol at these events. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's going to pass me by. Let's be honest. If you review it, kudos to you, mate. I I won't be there You know what I'm like. (laughs) Yeah, you'll have watched it. in in the US, it will also be. By the way, <laughs> I've not seen that yet, I but I have heard good things. <laughs> in the US, uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog will also be a day and date with Paramount Plus, uh, possibly to try to garner some subscribers on that service, <laughs> which is struggling. Well, I feel we're in like a bitchy mode today. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Resting bitch face today for me. I'm telling you, if, if I subscribe to Paramount Plus and they says we're going to give you Clifford the Big Red Dog, I'd subscribe to another service. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, rest assured, when this film comes out, I will watch it and I will review it. I I rem- I hope to be surprised, but I expect to be proven right that it's it's not for me. Um, and reason, yeah, and there's no reason it should be for you. No, it's designed designed for five to eight-year-old kids. That's that's one thing that, like, so many critics get wrong when they go in to see things like Paw Patrol or a Clifford film, etc., is they forget that they're not the target audience. Yeah. You should go in and just see it and think, if I was eight years old, how would I like this? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'd probably love it. And that's what May of the Bee is another one. (laughs) If you've ever watched a May of the Bee cartoon, oh, I sympathize. Uh, But... Kids love them. So Peter Rabbit. I sat through Peter Rabbit because uh, uh, my son wanted to watch it and uh, watch through it. It did absolutely nothing for me at all. It wasn't yeah. aimed at me. It wasn't for me. Paddington, on the other hand, I will defend to the day I die. But oh, yeah. Peter that, that, Rabbit, it that's... just wasn't for me. But I, I enjoyed it because I, I it was a family thing. Yeah. And on the subject of childish kind of things. So casting for the Mario movie. Mario movie. Whoa, wait, take a step back. 
when what, did we did we announce it on the show and I just missed that? There's a Super Mario Brothers film. We mentioned it about ooh, six weeks ago oh, when I ran through that, that Nintendo I've... were looking at bringing a lot of their IP to films. Well, this is an animated movie based on the Mario Brothers, Best place and me. the casting as Mario, the Italian plumber, is Chris Pratt. Okay, I thought you were going to go Samuel L. Jackson because I heard the trepidation in your voice that could have been interesting <laughs> <laughs> because italian um he's going to lead the film playing obviously mario alongside anya taylor joy providing the voice of princess peach charlie day as luigi jack black as bowser keegan michael key as toad seth rogan as donkey kong fred armison as cranky kong and kevin michael richardson as kamek oh and sebastian maniscalco as Spike. I'm just going to bring up an interesting point. Why didn't they cast an Italian-American in the role? Because if this had been a, a character of colour and they could cast Chris Pratt, then yeah. there would have been an outrage. I'm, I'm not trying to stoke any sort of racial fires, but uh, I'm just intrigued that, that um, they, they didn't cast uh, an Italian-American in the role. Well, you're not the only one oh, questioning this, okay. uh, because online there's a lot of backlash to this casting announcement on that same theme saying that this is just stunt casting to get a big name attached to something when it, a Mario Brothers animation doesn't need a big name attaching because no. the character is big enough as it is. Yeah. There's a huge amount of backlash. The rest of the cast, no one's got any problem with. Everyone thinks that, yeah, everyone's got the right kind of voices. But Chris Pratt, I've seen some people say that Chris Pratt only ever plays Chris Pratt in any film. And I can kind of see that. He, he has got some dramatic acting chops. He's done some good stuff. Was it Zero Dark Thirty yes. that he was in? Yep, um, he can do some dramatic acting, but I get what they're saying when it comes to like the the video gamey or the action adventure kind of things. He plays Chris Pratt in every film, and he would you it'll be one of them like Lego Movie that you can straight away identify. Well, that's Chris Pratt just being Chris Pratt. I'm not overly sure where, why they've chosen him. I think that maybe they could have diversified a bit. And in addition, another bit of backlash that has come is that all of these people who've been casting these are big actors. These are people who do live-action films, yeah. not just voice work. What about the solid number of just voice actors out there who are struggling to get work and they're getting turned over so that Chris Pratt can get paid £15 million or whatever? I'm, I'm, I, I agree with you, but I think it's, it is a marketing and, and it is a movie. Yeah. And, and It's to get the name at the top of the poster. Because it does help, ultimately, to, to some people. However, I do think, you know, and I look at... I, I look at IMDb, when you look at uh, the list of, of voice actors, boy, these people always seem to be in work. Yeah. There is, of course, there's more animation in it than there has ever been and more voice work. If I was to have my time again, I would, I would have been a voice actor because I think there's, there's so much, yeah. so much opportunities out there. Anyway, moving yeah, on. Video, the, the video game industry gives a lot of work for voice actors these days. Now that everything is actual dialogue. Yeah that they are fully scripted. So it does keep them in work. But it would be nice to see, you know, occasionally, yeah, even some of the support cast. We didn't need Anya Taylor-Joy or Ch Charlie Day or Jack Black in here. We could have had lesser-known voice actors if Chris Pratt's name's already at the top. But that's a, that's a story for a whole new show at some point. Uh, the script for this film comes from Matthew Fogel, who gave, who's written the script for Minions Rise of Gru. Oh, dear. And the direction is from Teen Titans Go! directors Aaron Horvath and Michael Jelinek. Oh, well, I'm back on board again now because I loved what they did with Teen Titans Go. Yeah, it was fun. It's uh, December, 20, December 22 is the release date set for this. So they've obviously got a lot of anticipation of it being a huge Christmas hit next year. Okay, and moving on. Clooney and Pitt are set to reteam yes. in an as-yet untitled film Saw that this. is going to tell the tale of two lone wolf fixers who are assigned to the same job. It's going to come from Clooney's 
Smokehouse Pictures and Pitt's Plan B production companies, with John Watts set to write and direct, which all of those names get me excited. Mm, yeah, John Watts must be filling this in before Fantastic Four, one would imagine. If the yes, this will be announced. a stopgap between huge blockbusters to move to something little bit of a diversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's obviously not just exciting to people like me and you because a bidding war has now started between many of the major studios, Apple, Netflix, Amazon, Sony, MGM, Warner. They're all fighting over this project. And who can blame them? Yeah. Clooney and Pitt together on screen is just gold. Uh, did you see that Netflix dropped a load of trailers this week? Yes. I mean, they're still dropping them right now as we're speaking. They're, I mean, they're, they're literally like flying overhead and they're, coming, they're being parachuted down. I can see some landing in my garden, which I'll get round to next, later this week. Uh, yeah, they're, they're doing an event this weekend, aren't they? That's right. Uh, where they're announcing literally everything that's coming up over the next year. And we've been saying week on week, Oh, I'm surprised Netflix haven't done a trailer for this yet. I'm surprised they haven't done a trailer for this yet. And this is why they've been waiting till this weekend. And so I've not seen any of them, but I've got my eye out for a few of them. And I'm going to wait until there's a compilation video online, probably tomorrow, and then work through and watch them all. The one that I'm most excited about is obviously Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Yeah. So what's dropped so far? Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, sci-fi comedy, also starring Meryl Streep. Don't Look Up has landed a clip for that. The Witcher confirmed for season three as well as more spin-offs the full trailer for army of the dead prequel army of thieves which i have very little interest in the crown's fifth series uh, will premiere in november 2022 cowboy bebop the live action series the trailer landed for that bridgerton season two and a first look at the adaptation of neil gaiman's sandman landed this week which I have not watched as of this recording. We will get round to watching them before next week and discuss our thoughts on the ones that stand out. We will. Henry Golding, Numi Rapace, Sam Neill and Daniela Mel- Melchior are the latest names to be added to the cast of Camille Delmar's Assassin's Club, which was is set in a world of contract killers. Morgan Gaines, played by Golding, is hired to kill six people around the world, only to find that each of those six people are all assassins too, and they've all been hired to kill each other. Melchior plays his love interest, Sam Neill his mentor, and Rapace his nemesis in what looks set to be yet another John Wick-esque wannabe film that might be good, might be average, might just be a Netflix special. Talking of trailers dropping, did you see the full trailer for Apple's new Alien Invasion series called Invasion, talking of Sam Neill? I didn't know. That looks like they've spent all the money. Looks like a worldwide (laughs) location. Of course, Apple and Amazon have all the money. Uh, and, and I think they spent some of this on Invasion and Foundation, which also landed this week as a series. Yeah, I've got to get round to watching Foundation. I watched the trailer for that, before, which dropped on before Ted Lasso. Um, and it, normally I skip past the trailers, but as soon as that trailer starts, it's like, oh, I'm watching this one. And then got to the end of it, I was like, I guess that's going on my radar for next week. Uh, we've said this before, that Apple TV might not have a huge amount of content, but everything they do is gold. Everything they do makes it worth watching. Yeah. And so I'll be checking out everything as it all lands. Uh, Netflix have acquired the entire Roald Dahl story company oh. for an undisclosed sum, wow. which gives them access to the full catalogue of works from the author. We already know that Taika Waititi and Phil Johnston are adapting Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as a TV series. And there's a Matilda the Musical in production. Yeah. But we can now expect Netflix to tap into other Roald Dahl works, such as the classics James and the Giant Peach and the BFG, Fantastic Mr. Fox. We might hopefully we'll see the twits get adapted properly. Uh, George's Marvelous Medicine will be a great one to see, and much, much more. 
as a fan of Roald Dahl, this makes me excited because I think that there's always the attention on Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and maybe the Witches. But the others kind of get sidelined a bit too much. And I'd love to see some exploration of the whole range of Dahl's work. Maybe we'd even see a Tales of the Unexpected revival. Oh, that'd be interesting. That would be interesting. That would. I mean, t- Tales of the Unexpected. Oh, I, I rewatched some of those on, I think it was Shudder had them about two years ago. Have they held up? And they are... St- they some of them some of them are very dated, but generally they hold up well because they were just they were just short, mysterious and creepy and supernatural stories. Yeah, always had a good cast as well, if I remember. Same way that the classic Twilight Zone episodes hold up, Tales of the Unexpected held up pretty damn well. Shall we talk about Shang Chi? Shall we? Is it still doing well at the box office? It is still doing well at the box office. It's uh, now officially the biggest box office in the US for 2021, That's as it flew past Black Widow this weekend. Uh, the film is going to land on Disney Plus. For no, on November the 12th, a day that is being called Disney Plus Day to celebrate the anniversary of the service's launch. On that same day, Jungle Cruise, Home Sweet Home, some new shorts linked to Frozen, Luke and the Simpsons, a Boba Fett special, an MCU special, and the first five episodes of The World According to Jeff Goldblum are all going to drop. Now, the interesting bit of the Shang-Chi landing on November the 12th is that, if you remember, it was initially reported that Shang-Chi was going to go for the 45-day window before it goes to streaming, but this date makes it 70 days. So they've announced that it's going to streaming after 45 days. Does this mean that it's going to go to premium streaming Mm. on the 45-day window? They've not announced that. I did notice that. Amazon, Sky, etc. will have it for a paid subscription, a paid fee rental, until the 70 days when it goes free on Disney+. Plus. We don't know for definite at this point in time, but that sounds likely, especially seems though it's started to slow down now at the box office internationally. And so at this point, getting a premium streaming will hopefully give it that boost that it needs to take it past the 500 million mark. I've just had a stop press, which uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them uh, is not Fantastic franchises and how to ruin them. Yes, is <laughs> not going to HBO Max, is getting purely a cinema release yeah well this is because it lands in 2022 april the 15th 2022 which as we've reported before the hbo max plan was only up until the end of this year matrix is the last one to be part of that plan so from that point onwards warners have no intention to keep going with it because it was just a stopgap. They announced it when they announced it at the start. They said this is just for the times that we're in at the moment and it's only going to be for this one year. Yeah, I mean, it's got a full title now, which is called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, The Secret of Dumbledore. And the film sees Jude Law return as Dumbledore, Eddie Redmayne back as Newt Scamander. Mads Mikkelsen is taking over the role of Grindelwald because uh, Depp has been booted. And the film sees Albus Dumbledore entrust Newt to lead a team of wizards to try to prevent Grindelwald from seizing control of the wizarding world, encountering new beasts along the way. And I couldn't be less enthused. Yeah, I've only saw the first one. Uh, That was enough. I just had no connection with that film at all. Woke out completely bored by it uh, and had no intention of ever seeing a sequel. Yeah, it's just not, it's not necessary. The the Harry Potter franchise had finished and now they're adapting what was a source book over into multiple unnecessary films. But hey, I guess the money's the money's coming in, so they're gonna keep making them. Um, World War II action feature from Rare Export Exports Director Jalmari Helander called Immortal has begun filming. Wow. Set in nineteen forty five, the tale sees an ex soldier in Lapland stumble across some gold deep in the woods. His attempts to get the gold are thwarted by a ruthless Nazi officer and so begins a battle for wealth in the wilderness. This sounds like my kind of wartime gold yeah, retrieving me kind too. of film. It's one of those ideas which has been done in, in other ways with other films. But yeah, 
I'm intrigued by that one. Colour color me in. Do you ever remember a manga and anime series called Saint Seiya? No. No. Not not in my bag, I'm afraid. I have vague recollections of it. You're talking about that it was out during the 80s. And oh, definitely I, not. <laughs> back end of the 80s when I was getting into me anime and manga, that's when I stumbled across it. Creator Masami Karamunda is the person who was behind it. And it's now getting a live action treatment with names such as Mekenyu, Madison Asman, Sean Bean, Famke Jansen, Nick Stahl, Diego Tinoco, and Mark Dacoscus. The manga followed warriors known as the Saints, who gather powers from constellations, and they gather to defend a reincarnated goddess of Athena from the other gods who want to take over the Earth. Makenyu is going to play Seiya, a street orphan who must choose a side in the battle for the fate of the world, and also for the fate of a young girl named Sienna who struggles to contain her own powers. It's being brought to the screen by Thomas Baginski, who is behind the Witcher TV series, and Andy Cheng, who um, did the choreography on Shang-Chi. And so it's got some decent names right. behind the scenes. The film the film has apparently wrapped shooting already and is in post. This is something that was kept secret and is now basically going to be on our doorstep within the next few months. What will happen to the internet if the film's already been cast? What are they going to do about moaning about the casting? It's madness, I tell you, madness. I think this one benefited by the fact that, as was demonstrated when I asked you the question, do you remember it? Not many people were aware of this in the West. And so it's not being latched onto as news until it's ready to come out. And the names behind it, the names involved in the cast and the names directing and doing the choreography, that sells it for me. And it could be quite an interesting little martial arty bit of anime live action. Uh, Following the success of Coming to America, Amazon and Eddie Murphy have signed a three-picture and a first-look deal. Murphy is going to star in three films for Amazon Studios, whilst also developing other projects that he may also star in or might just produce. I would like to see Eddie Murphy do something dangerous. When he did Dolomite Is Still My Name, that's when Eddie Murphy was out of his comfort zone. For He could still, yeah. still do the comedy side, he could still do the drama, he could still he could do the pathos. It proved that the kind of star that Eddie Murphy used to be and could be before he went down the safety route. I want to see that Eddie Murphy. I like the comedic Eddie Murphy if it wasn't always the family films. To some extent, yeah. Coming to America 2 was, a, was a, a, a family film. I want to see the dangerous Eddie Murphy again because that's the Eddie Murphy that will intrigue me and bring me back to his films. Yeah, I mean, he's been on a roll. Like you say, Dolomite Is My Name got some great critical responses. Coming to America might not have got the great critical responses, but it did tap onto the nostalgia enough to make it a success. And he's got a Beverly Hills Cop 4 film in the pipeline. In addition, there's also a Murphy-led comedy feature for Netflix, which is dubbed as an incisive examination of modern love and family dynamics and how clashing cultures, societal expectations and generational differences shape and affect relationship, which seems a bit deep for a Murphy comedy. Um, But it's now added Julia Louis-Dreyfus alongside Murphy and Jonah Hill to the cast. Murphy and Hill are going to play opposite sides of the divide and Dreyfus plays Hill's mother. Uh, When when I read that Dreyfus plays Hill's mother, I was like, she's not that old. And then I looked it up. It's like, oh, she is. She's she's holding it well. Yeah, she's been in the game for years. You think about when she did Seinfeld to to Veep, to to her current uh, stretch of work. Yeah, she's 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 been with us through entertainment for some time. But uh, just just having her involved in it makes me a bit more excited to see what can come with that. Fingers crossed, like I say, it'll be more like Dolomite is my name and less like 
coming to America, which uh, we spoke about many, 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 many weeks ago, and I didn't like. No, I'm not <laughs> going back and revisiting it and thinking it was a masterpiece because it wasn't. So uh, Kevin Bacon, who's been known to dip in and out of horror from time to time, yeah. is returning to horror in a conversion therapy movie from Bloomhouse, um, written by uh, John Logan, who we know worked on a lot of the last Bond films, and he did the Penny Dreadful series. So interested in in both those two working together. I know very little about the film at this stage, but both people involved and Bloomhouse, then I'm interested. Quick sticking with horror, and we've been talking pretty much week on week about Stephen King's Salem's Lot adaptation, and now the lead role of Richard Straker the vampire familiar who does a lot of the dirty work in the story has been cast in the guise of Pillow Asbarke. Oh, from Game of Thrones. People might recognise from Game of Thrones yeah. and also was in Ghost in the Shell. Great casting choice. Yeah, it's I interesting they've gone with the European actor because the, the character is described as European in the books. Yeah, uh, he's got that He's got that menace, but also that charm and persuasion that you can really see working. At, great. I, I would have never have picked him no. as my choice. But now that it's been announced, it's like, this is why I'm not in the casting chair. This is why I don't, don't make these choices, because I'm just a fan of the material. I don't know the inspiration. Yeah, I mean, previously played by James Mason. So it's always been portrayed as an, an older gentleman. I mean, there's yeah. still the, the Barlow character to, to look at because the, the Toby Hooper version did you know, the Nosferatu version, which was was not quite the same descriptor as, as the as the book. So. I'm intrigued yep. by the casting on this so far. I think they've gone in a, a quite an interesting and unique way. I and mean, when we talked about the lead. So, yeah, looking forward to it. I'm looking, I mean, anyway, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's got Stephen King's name attached to it. So, of course, we're in. <laughs> we, we will suffer through some bad Stephen King films just to make sure that we can get to see the good ones when they land as well. And rounding off, filmmakers Arturo Perez Jr. and Samantha Jane are on board to direct the film adaptation of the musical adaptation of the film Mean Girls. <laughs> How meta. How meta. The original version, which wasn't a musical, became a musical and is now being made as a musical. Is this unique? Yes. No, uh, it's been done before. Tina Fey's 2004 modern cult classic was adapted to a Broadway production, which was running successfully on Broadway right up until the pandemic hit and then it closed and it hasn't reopened. Uh, so there's no casting in this film adaptation of that Broadway version as of yet, but the original stars of the stage version are not expected to be returning. It will be a completely new cast and it will follow the same tale, which see, the original film saw Lindsay Lohan join a new school and navigate the social groups within. And it was quite a, quite a charm. I'm not sold on this transferring things over to musicals and then transferring them back. But when it does work, we get films like The Producers, which I love the first film. I love the musical film version. I'm fine with it if they can do something with it and make it worthwhile. I was disappointed by The Producers, I'll be honest. And I mentioned when we talked about Young Frankenstein, having seen the stage version, which was OK, but it was all the same laughs was still yeah. the thing that made it funny. But the songs were a bit poor. Uh, but the producers just didn't work for me at all. Just before we go, I've got a couple of sad announcements. We lost this week Melvin Van Peebles, a groundbreaking actor, writer and director who was a towering icon in black cinema and filmmaking, has died at the age of 89. The most famous of his work was The Watermelon Man, which came out in 1970s, which was the story of a white bigot who wakes up one morning to discover he's black in a sort of Twilight Zone morality tale that was new to black america at the time he's also the father of actor 
Melvin Van Peebles. And we also sadly lost the British industry stalwart and director, Roger Mitchell, who died at the age of 65 this past week. Now, you might not recognise his name straight out, but if I was to say films like Notting Hill, Venus, Changing Lanes, High Park on the Hudson, Morning Glory, Blackbird, a wealth, an absolute wealth of films that he was notably attached to. Um, he most recently directed The Duke, and yeah, he's got a career that has touched upon every aspect of filmmaking, from drama to road rage action films to everything you will have at least one of his films somewhere in your list of films you have to see before you die because he was so versatile. Yeah, I mean, tying into to Bond, he, he was very close because he had a working relationship with Daniel Craig, who had shot in The Mother and Enduring Love. He almost made a Quantum of Solace for Craig, but left yeah. over script issues. And, and you went through all the films like uh, Notting Hill, for instance, and uh, he started with Buddha of Suburbia on TV. I was always surprised at Changing Lanes because it was such a, a different kind of movie for him. And I've got a, yeah. a lot of light for Changing Lanes because it's a very clever film. So, and 65 these days is absolutely uh, no age to go. So uh, our condolences to his friends, family and colleagues. And that is this week's The News. Still with us, still listening to The Film File. Good on you. And you know what? We love having you. So much so that we're going to suggest that you head over to your favorite podcast platform. And if you haven't done so, hit the subscribe button and hit the like button. And while you're at it, knock out a review for us, will you? Because it makes us so warm and lovely inside and not angry. Because, well, you wouldn't like us when we're angry. You can also check out The Film File on Twitter at Film File UK, over on Instagram, Film File UK, or you can email us with thoughts, suggestions, reviews, problems. I mean, I, I, we've done this before. I'm happy to be an agony uncle and I will like talk about your problems on air if you're fine with that. Uh, you know podcast... what, Andy? What would be great would be if you were an agony uncle to, to about film stuff. Oh, that would oh, be awesome. I never really liked Piers Brosnan as James Bond. Well, this is what you could do. Why don't you go and check out the Timothy Dalton years, for instance? Or, I'm having problems with my girlfriend, and I don't know what film to watch tonight to get her in the mood. Here is a list of, here is a list of suggestions. See what we did? So, it, it works well, perfectly. I can be the agony uncle for all you film geeks out there. Uh, send us an email. Go on. I dare you. Podcast at filmfile.uk. So as you know, at this point in the program, it is our deep dive where we take a deep dive into a classic movie, an interesting choice or a film that we just adore. And as you know, James Bond is back this week with no time to die. Should have come out last year, but it's with us this very week. So rather than talk about just one James Bond and just one James Bond actor, let's talk about the whole darn series. Take it away, John Barry.
that James Bond was created by novelist Ian Fleming in 1953. And as you know, a British secret agent working for MI6 under the code name 007. He's been portrayed by many actors, including Sean Connery, David Niven, George Lazenby, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Piers Brosnan, and now Daniel Craig in 27 productions. All but two were made by Eon Films, who now hold the rights to all of Fleming's Bond novels. The film series started in 1961 with Dr. No, directed by Terence Young and featured Connery as Bond. The series of films followed in 1962, and as I said, there have been 24 films with a combined gross of nearly $7 billion today, and it's the sixth highest grossing film series of all time. Andy, I know we've got a lot to get through. What was your first introduction to Bond? What was the first Bond film that you ever saw? I couldn't put my finger on which would be the first of the Bond films, but I can tell you that as a child, holiday times, Easter, Christmas, any bank holidays, it was always going to be a Bond film on either BBC or ITV that I would tune into. And this is another one of those that I used to sit there when we got the Radio Times and look across on a bank holiday Monday and circle which film I wanted to watch. And it would have been one of the Roger Moore era because the Roger Moore films got a lot of rotation on TV during my seven to nine to ten year old era. And I was drawn straight away to the ones that I can remember specifically watching on TV are Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, They were the two that most commonly would pop up. Sean Connery ones would also get put into the rotation, but they didn't quite have that memorable hold on me as a young child. Basically, if BBC was showing Goldfinger and ITV was showing Live and Let Die, which occasionally happened on Boxing Day, that they both go head-to-head with a different Bond from a different era, I would be circling Live and Let Die because as a child, I wanted to see more. (laughs) I wanted to see more. Um, And so... That was my early introduction to Bond, was through TV. The first one that I saw on the cinema was Moonraker. Okay. Which, as a child, I absolutely adored Moonraker. And I know it doesn't stand up well over time. And neither does any of the Roger Moore era, to be honest with you. But I lapped that up as a child because it was Bond going into space. And it was tapping into that like whole sci-fi element of adventure that had started when Star Wars had come out. So that was my first cinema experience, Moonraker. But aside from that, it was always Boxing Day, Easter, Monday, any bank holidays, always got to be a Bond film on TV. And no matter how many times I'd seen them, I would always rewatch them. I remember, and I'm not sure in which order this started, whether I saw Bond on TV first or I went to the cinema. So when ITV got the rights to the Bond film, and this is in the day when there were three channels, It was such a big deal. I mean, it was a revelation. And they started with, of course, Dr. No, and they showed them in chronological order. So I'm not sure whether I came into Bond, because I do remember seeing Dr. No on television, or I started with Diamonds Are Forever in the cinema. So that bit of chronology, I'm unsure about. But I did see Diamonds Are Forever first, and it was the last of, as we know, the Sean Connery movies until Never Say Never Again came up. And then the mantle got passed to Roger Moore for uh, Live and Let Die. Now, Roger Moore was one of those actors that I'd kind of grown up with in in the early 70s. So Roger Moore initially made much more of of an impact on me. I knew him from The Saint. I knew him from various movies. And I knew him from The Persuaders. 
And so Roger Moore stepping into it suddenly made him my favourite Bond. It's when I got a bit older and reassessed and got to know more of the Connery Bonds that that, that order changed. Uh, Live and Let Die was my first. And that was followed by Man with the Golden Gun. And I was in. And every time a Bond film came out, I would be there in the cinema to see it. Right up to Moonraker. Because when Moonraker landed, I was done with Bond. I hated where they'd taken Bond from this from this uh, uh, suave super spy. Spy All of Me pushed the envelope as much as it could. And then by the time it got to Moonraker, they'd not just pushed the envelope. They'd stepped over the envelope, burnt the envelope and, and gone in a direction because I hate I hate camp. And I yeah. hated what, what Bond had become. And I was getting a bit older as well. So I'm sure it was there, but I think Moonraker over pushed it. And it became a spoof of what it was, you know, the, the play on Close Encounters, the play on the, the sci-fi thing. Uh, and, and Bond was following trends rather than setting trends as it had done in the 60s. And I was out. And I didn't see another Bond film at, at the cinema until Timothy Dalton replaced with Living Daylights. And then I was back in again. So I've had a had, had a relationship with, with mm. James Bond through the movies my entire life. I had got reading the novels, but they were so severely dated. Yeah. Even reading them as, a, as, as in a much younger age that I just couldn't connect with them at all. Uh, and, and desperately, desperately tried and, and had a go at a couple of them. I remember trying to read Thunderball. And uh, while they are much more gritty, I, I just didn't connect to them because the language is so... It is so much of it of its time, but I'm, I'll always be with Bond, and it's played a, a massive, uh, a massive influence in in my cinema going because for a long, long time they were the the herald of, of British cinema because ultimately they they were British films. Uh, I'm the I'm the same as you that when I was young, like I said, Roger Moore, I loved everything that he did, but as I got older, as I got into my early teens and started to watch the Connery films a lot more i started to appreciate that version of bond a lot more and i kind of fell out of love with moore's one whilst they were running i mean i saw moonraker onwards all at the cinema <laughs> i saw octopussy at the cinema oh why did i do that um but i remember when a, a view to a kill came out and i was all over that like a rash and i know it's not a good film but yeah, there was a poster collection that you could get from collecting uh, cutouts from the back of crisp packets. And I got all four posters, uh, mainly because I went skip diving outside the leisure center to get all the empty crisp packets <laughs> to send As off to get me free posters. You have to do these things. I was obsessed with it. And I, at the time, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I was getting more and more aware that what Connery brought to the role was a, something a lot, a lot edgier and a bit rough around the edges, and that's what Bond was to me. Like yourself, I delved into the books, and I've got some love for the books, but yes, they are a hard read. They are very of their time. But in that, I saw what Bond should be, which is that edgier. It is that hard-edged Bond. It's not the Roger Moore knowing wink at camera and quote an innuendo and give a bad pun. And so once Timothy Dalton came around, I lapped up what Dalton did. I loved that they went back to like a Connery-esque kind of approach and tried to make it grittier, tried to make it more serious, get rid of, still had some gadgets, but they offloaded so many of them, got rid of the ridiculous nature. And for those two films, Bond was great again. Yeah, I mean, they weren't the best Bond films, but I think I think Timothy Dalton definitely brought back that hard edge, which had, which had really been missing and where Moore had become far too old for the role by the time he got to make View to a Kill. And it was starting to show, and they couldn't shoot around it. 
more should have packed it in after Moonraker. Because For Your Eyes Only it was a kind of a return to what what we liked about Bond. Octopussy I never saw, View to a Kill, I've only seen on television, uh, but I, I, I just I didn't buy it. The only thing I enjoyed about that was the music. But yeah, Timothy Dalton brought, brought that back. And then when we got Pierce Brosnan, and I think Timothy Dalton was hard done by, I think he should have had at least a, another film. The biggest problem with Dalton is that he was bringing a, a rougher-edged Bond back at a time when cinema goers wanted action films with jokes. They wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, stick around, get to the chopper. They wanted the ridiculous action. They didn't want a gritty Bond. Yeah, it kind of fell in that that two spaces, didn't it? Because when Dalton suggested that he, he wouldn't be coming back or it was made apparent that Dalton wouldn't come back, it looked like at one point that Mel Gibson was going to get the role. Yeah, And uh, they wanted to take it almost down a lethal weapon style of filmmaking, all to do with rights and which studio bought Bond. But at one point, Mel Gibson was hotly tipped to take over Bond. And I'm sure he would have done a, a good job because back then, the Mel Gibson that we know of today didn't have the baggage. He'd come straight off Lethal Weapon, was a huge international star. And before Lethal Weapon had been pretty much a dramatic actor rather than an action hero. So it would have been interesting if they played it with a British accent. But that brought us to Pierce Brosnan. And Pierce Brosnan had been up for the part much earlier. In fact, uh, he looked initially to take over from Roger Moore, but his work on Remington Steel, the TV series he was in at the time, uh, contractually meant that he couldn't play play Bond. But he eventually got the role. As he got a little bit older and lost some of the some of the more younger looking aspect, if you get what I mean, he was he was a little bit too pretty while he was in uh, uh, Remington Steel. But by the time he got to play Bond in Goldeneye back in 1995. Those refreshers were 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 clearly on display, and it brought a maturity to Bond. So it was an interesting era. It was brought back by Martin Campbell, who would then later bring back uh, Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. But it was a patchy era. I have a lot of time for Goldeneye, great Bond film. Tomorrow Never Dies. The World Is Not Enough is okay. Die Another Day. By the time we get to that, was a, it was a complete joke and killed the career of director Lee Tamahari altogether because it was it was a mishmash of Bond ideas and almost went back to being a Roger Moore film. I've just done a rewatch of all of the Brosnan era because I started a rewatch of my whole box set of Bond when No Time to Die was due out last year. And then it got moved. And so I stopped me rewatch after I'd watched a few Connery films. And then I started watching it again towards the back end of last year when No Time to Die was due to get released. And then it got moved. So I stopped my rewatch once I got like a part way into the Roger Moore. And so I started it over the past month to continue the rewatch. And I've now got all the way through the Brosnan era. And I remember liking Goldeneye when it came out. And I remember liking it when I watched it on home release. But this recent revisit hasn't held up well for me. The recent revisit has, has made me look at it kind of not as good as it was. And I think it's because I've watched the Dalton two films back to back and then went straight on to Goldeneye. And I can see that all that Pierce Brosnan did, he didn't bring anything new to the role. He's cosplaying Roger Moore. And that's all that he brought to it. He just went back to the girls, the gadgets and the innuendos. And there's literally every third line of dialogue is a bad pun. And it'd be like if I wrote a bad dad jokes book version of um, Bond, that's what the Brosnan era in total 
turned out to be. It got more, they got weaker and weaker as the films went on. And I think one of the biggest problems it had is around the same time as GoldenEye came out, Mike Myers brought us Austin Powers and pointed fun at all the nonsense that Bond was still trying to do. And it made Bond look dated for its time because Austin Powers was doing it better and funnier. Well, I mean, interestingly, GoldenEye was was the opportunity to wipe the slate clean. And it did so really, really well. I think Martin Campbell brought a new edge to Bond, really updated it. We got Judi Dench as M. We finally got a new uh, money penny. It just started to fall apart by the time we got to World Is Not Enough. I've got a soft spot for Tomorrow Never Dies. I thought that was was a good, strong Bond film. But as we go through until we get to Die Another Day, they were so weakened uh, and as you said they were they were a throwback to Roger Moore when the world had moved on and to some extent Casino Royale and many people criticized the film for it saw what was happening within the genre because at that point yeah. we got the Jason Bourne films yeah Bourne was seeking identities missions were being impossible everywhere and Bond looked too dated. So it needed that reinvigoration for the Bond franchise to make it darker, make it grittier. So along comes Martin Campbell again to reintroduce Bond with a new Bond, and we got Daniel Craig. Now, for me, Daniel Craig is the epitome of Bond. I can't go against anything that Sean Connery did because I think everything that Sean Connery did set the standard, especially from Russia With Love, which is, which is probably ultimately on the list of things the best Bond movie. And I, and I realise that we've not talked about George Lazenby, which we should by the time we get to the end yeah. of talking about Craig. And it's the first time that I would go back and watch a Bond movie and watch them again in the same way that I would now with my Marvel Universe stuff. I, I got the, the blue race for it. I think it's added a dimension to Bond because in that very first film, they talk about him being a blunt instrument. You know, they, they do the... Bond begins at the same time that Batman Begins came out and they, they started it they started again at the beginning of his career and they've had an arc and for the first time ever they weren't standalone films for the first time ever they had themes that ran through the series and they had elements that they were sequels upon sequels upon sequels in the same way that, that the Jason Bourne films were and I think that's added something into Bond it's added that sense of continuity so the, the aspect of of now Daniel Craig moving on is even more intriguing rather than just replacing with another actor. They've yeah. they've taken that entire chapter of that character's life from starting in, in the missions to to walking away at the end of Spectre from from his job as 007, which it feels like No Time to Die is 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 what they're playing on. Which comes comes back to the Quentin Tarantino theory that 007 and, and James Bond is a, is an identity that you pick rather than you're born yeah. that way. I I've always subscribed to that theory. I've always said this, and I know some people have turned around and said that when Skyfall came out, that disproved that theory because he was the he was James Bond born into the family of Bond. But I explain that by saying there was an original James Bond, and that was this James Bond's father. The original James Bond, played by Sean Connery, passed away, and the identity was used for following agents. Whoever got the 007 license always got the James Bond name. Why did M want to recruit this James Bond? Because she had an attachment to the original James Bond because she worked alongside him, and so she was always protective and mother-like towards Daniel Craig's Bond. She recruited him into the agency to follow in his father's footsteps so the James Bond legacy could come back to the family. Well, that's how I like to look at it. came true, Andy, in 
Skyfall because the Albert Finney character was originally going to, be, to be Connery, Sean Connery. But yeah. um, he, he either turned it down because he was ill at the time. So I don't know whether he turned it down to illness or just didn't want to revisit the character as he'd retired. So, yeah, where we go from No Time to Die is going to be interesting. I mean, there's been rumours that we'll be introduced to the new Bond at the end of the film. Yeah. It's pure speculation. Nobody knows. But it would be an interesting way to go. So we, we talked about uh, the early Bond films and we, we talked about Sean Connery from Doctor No right through to You Only Live Twice. And again, they, they followed the same pattern. They built up what Bond, the Bond that we know today, you know, from the big sets, the, the huge supervillain Spectre, the bigger and better stunts with each movie got slightly sillier as they went through. From Russia with Love is a gritty Bond film, more akin to the sort of um, Daniel Craig movies that we've got today. And then Connery quit at the end of You Only Live Twice. And there was a huge casting call, international casting call, for who was going to be the next Bond. And there were some interesting choices of actors who who didn't get the role. So in a a what-if universe, uh, which preempts what we're going to talk about with what-if, there could have been a, a different Bond series with the actor taking part after Connery. Now, many people think on a Majesty's Secret Service that ended up starring George Lazenby was a flop. It did really, really yeah. well. It wasn't as successful as the previous uh, uh, Bond films. In actual box office, it made more than Dr. No and just slightly less than From Russia With Love. But it wasn't a, it wasn't a flop. What it was was a difficult film. But to some extent, it is the archetype best Bond film of them all because yeah. Bond had, a, had was given a character, was given something to want and desire and to ultimately lose. And, and again, in a what if universe, if Sean Connery had played that, that would have been a fantastic out for him rather than coming back and doing the, the rather uh, silly Diamonds Are Forever. What a way to go out for Connery if he'd have played that. But Luxembourg wasn't bad. He's much more charming than you think he is. He's a little mm-hmm. bit wooden. He likes the charisma of Connery. If it had gone on to make further Bond films, then I think he would have uh, he would have grown more into the role. But there's there's lots and lots of reasons as to why he didn't go back. There's a great uh, documentary about the Bond films on I think it's the Casino Royale Blu-ray has has a, a, a look at the movies, which is a real insight into the into the Bond movies and the casting. But so many actors were, were up for that role, and then. Of course, so many actors were up for Roger Moore taking over, but yeah. Roger Moore always seemed the safe choice. Now, we can't talk about Bond without talking about some of the offshoots, the non-Eon Films Bonds, starting with Casino Royale, <laughs> which we have to talk about. And I, um, I know for some people have got an absolute, absolute love for it. It <laughs> is a time capsule. And when you talk about Austin Powers, this is closer to Austin Powers than any of the Bond films. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a what's new pussycat kind of spy romp caper, um, very much of the era that it was made in, very silly, very ridiculous, not at all a Bond film. But you know what? As much as I know it's a terrible film, I find some weird enjoyment re-watching it from time to time. Now, if you've not seen it, it stars, it almost goes back to what we've just been talking about. It stars David Niven as James Bond, his successor is Peter Sellers, and there's also a Jimmy Bond played by Woody Allen. And it plays with this idea that, that Bond is an identity. So if you, when Broccoli and Saltzman bought the rights to the uh, existing and future Fleming titles, the deal didn't include Casino Royale, which had been produced for TV. In 1954, there was a, a TV adaptation 
where Bond works for the CIA and is known as Jimmy Bond. So those rights subsequently got passed on and became the Bond spoof Casino Royale. And there was also a legal case ensured that the film rights to the novel Thunderball were held yeah. by uh, a producer called Kevin McClory, as he, Fleming, and scriptwriter Jack Whittingham had written the film script on which the novel was based. And that led us into, because McClory retained the rights uh, to Thunderball, Never Say Never Again, which Sean Connery famously came back to play Bond for one last time. So Never Say Never Again, great title, knowingly, uh, knowingly brilliant, and great to see Connery back on the big screen. Irving Kirshner, straight off uh, Empire Strikes Back, directed it. But it just falls incredibly short of being a, a great Bond film. And the biggest yeah. icon that's missing from it, the thing that spoiled that film for me more than anything else was the music. Because yeah. what we've grown up with, which was the John Barry score and subsequently the inspiration from, from John Barry, is missing. And it had a, almost like a a light jazz touch to the uh, to the soundtrack by Michel Legrand, which kills the film dead for me and, and, and spoils what would have been a fairly interesting Bond spin-off movie. Yep. Uh, the whole lawsuit, the whole legal issue behind uh, Never Say Never Again, Thunderball issue, is the reason why Spectre wasn't used throughout the Roger Moore era, because that was something directly linked to the original story of Thunderball. And it's why Spectre never got mentioned and Quantum got used instead in the Daniel Craig era, up until they finally resolved it in time for the last last film that came out, Spectre, which was a mixed bag of a film. There's a lot that I love in that film, but the, it just has a few missteps in there that don't quite work. But at the end of it, I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see this final outing for Craig. Yeah, I mean, as we said, we can only speculate as to the film. Interesting director uh, went through some other choices for director, including. And it looked to be on the cards for some time, Danny Boyle. Yeah. Uh, but Carrie Fukunaga, who had done True Detective for HBO, was brought on. A really visual and clever, wealth, really clever director who knows how to direct action. If you remember the, the famous one shot in True Detective, which is so cinematic, yeah. he's, he's, he's well worth watching for this. Uh, wouldn't have never been on the cards for me, but... Um, you know, there's been some great directors on it. Um, Martin Campbell, Sam Mendes, uh, even though Quantum of Solace is, is looked at poorly, I think Mark Foster did did well with the with the work. Uh, Michael Apted, uh, Roger Spot Eastwood, uh, uh, going back to Guy Hamilton, uh, Peter mm -hmm. Hunt, Terence Young. There's a there's there's been some some great directors. I'm never going to mention John Glenn because I think that's when the 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 films just fell apart and just looked incredibly incredibly bland. But looking forward to it, we'll find out this week. We will review it next week. And you know what? It might be no time to die, but it's no time to wait for me. Hey, what 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 would you consider the best films in the Bond franchise? Good choice, because you, you mentioned this. I mean, I've not been at all disappointed with uh, with Craig's run. For, say, for the first time, I really invested in Bond, rather than them being, being an outing. I think Casino Royale is fantastic. I think Skyfall offers so much depth into the character. Mm. I have a love affair with Live and Let Die. Not a great Bond movie, yeah. but it, it was my first real introduction when I when I really went for it. From Russia with Love still holds on as probably being the best story. And on Her Majesty's Secret Service, because yeah. as I said, if it had been Connery's swan song, it's such a great script. It's so well told and it gives us an insight into Bond that, that we that we'd not seen before. 
we see Bond get married and we see the subsequent loss of that. And and it was a very, very brave move. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely those for me. I'd agree definitely with that. Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Live and Let Die in Casino Royale. I would throw into the mix Goldfinger, which I think was the one that defined all the aspects yeah, it's of the Bond icon. that would go forward. It's, it's, the, it's the template. And License to Kill, my rewatch of it recently, it holds up so well. And so that makes it into my top five, basically. Uh, Connery still just about pips it as my favourite actor in the role of Bond. But Daniel Craig is so close to stealing it that if this final outing hits all the right notes, Connery is second place. Uh, Brosnan, sadly, is bottom of the pile for me. Right. The recent rewatches just show that he was cosplaying Roger Moore. And Lazenby takes the mid-ground. Yeah, it would be nice to see more from Lazenby. I, as I said, I think he'd, if he'd have survived, because uh, uh, he quit rather than was psyched from what I believe. I think the, the, the urban legend is that, he, that he, was, he was fired from it, but I think, he, I think he quit. I don't think he had a particularly great great time on it. There was, a, but, there was uh, a, reports it, of like difficulties on set, and he was very diva-ish at times, which caused some friction uh, yeah. while making it, um, which is a shame because it would have been interesting to see what he could have done, how he could have grown it who would you pick for the next bond who would be wow. your first pick choice okay i've got a couple of choices because i'm i'm know in the next week i'm going to be asked this uh on the bbc probably <laughs> i'll probably be doing three or four a day uh talking about this so i'm going to go with two interesting choices now i'm going to say something that, that may be deemed controversial but i don't think it should be a black actor unless of course we do uh, we do understand that Bond is a figurehead, is, a, is an identity, as opposed yeah. to to being the character. Then it would work. But um, I, I would rather see a, a black a black secret agent movie yeah. with a character that that because then you've got to tack on sort of the the upbringing and the the way that Bond has been brought up. And I would rather see a new character yeah. than than see a, a black actor take take that over. So I do have I have. Two, two choices for it. One would be Jamie Bell. I think Jamie Bell now in his mid-30s has, has got enough chops on him to be able to bring something very likable to him. I know you remember him as Billy Elliot, and I know he's come a long way from that. So I think, I think Jamie Bell's got some chops. But my absolutely, absolutely uh, perfect choice is um, Aidan Turner. Oh, you stole mine. <laughs> did I? Oh, right. Oh, brilliant. Um, well, we can agree on something because uh, he grew up through being human. He's got the smoldering good yeah. looks. He's got the charm. He's got the personality. Prove that he can he can do a, a British accent with Paul Dark. Yeah. It was. He was in a couple of Christmases ago, a great BBC adaptation of an Agatha Christie. Uh, and the, the BBC had, had, had been doing a, a seasonal ad, uh, Agatha Christie adaptation. And he was in Then There Were None. And he played, I think it was either somebody who'd been in the Secret Service or was a big game hunter, but he had the right element of charm and he had the right element of danger. And and he needed to prove that in uh, being human. I think he would be an absolutely spot on Bond and would bring something very, very different to it. Um, Slightly younger, but that means that you can stick around for some time and... uh, uh, and, and grow because if you're going to be in bond for four years then it's it's 10 years out of your life yeah and i think that that would work wonderfully so yeah he would be my choice yeah i mean he, he's top of my list because I've, I've, I've followed his career since like i first saw him in being human and he he's always stood out but he's one of those that 
people always pick the big names. They go, oh, I wanted Rosalba to be Bond. Oh, I want, and they go for like people who are already huge names. But Bond is always cast best when it's casting someone who's known, but not huge. Because the character of Bond should be what sells it, not who's playing the role. And Aidan Turner fits that bill perfectly because he's a solid actor who can bring such presence to it, but he's not universally known. Yeah, and he could hold his own in in The Hobbit, you know, because he's got great screen presence. So, yeah, um, I I think he's an absolutely perfect choice. If you'd have asked me a couple of years ago, then I would have said uh, Michael Fassbender. But I think he's, he's too old for it now. Yeah. So we'll see. We shall, with a bit of luck, find out this week as to what becomes of Daniel Craig's Bond. And I'm pretty certain in my estimation that they've already cast the new Bond because they've had a year to do it. I think they're just waiting for the right time to tell us. Okay, so that's Bond. Let's have a look at this week's reviews. This week, we've got a whole bag of reviews, including one that I've seen and Andy hasn't, which is a rarity (laughs) on this show. You're just going to hold that over me now. I am. Andy, kick off, will you? Because I was going to watch this last night in preparation for the show, but I ended up going to the cinema instead. Kick off with The Green Knight, because I've been intrigued by this for some time. Now, before you do that, I want to preface this with, I know in the States it didn't do any business because it was released as a summer film. And clearly, David Lowery, other than Pete's Dragon, is not a summer film director. And so I think people went into this with a huge amount of expectation they were going to get a big budget fantasy film. But what they've got is something I'm guessing from the trailer and knowing Lowry's work, something more cerebral. Yes. So written and directed by David Lowry and adapted from a 14th century poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This film stars Dev Patel as Gawain, the nephew of King Arthur, who sets out on a journey to test his courage. And it's a sumptuous and faithful adaptation of the source material. And as such, is a very hard thing to recommend. You tell me a tale of yourself. So that I might know thee. have none to tell yet. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with this film. It looks stunning. And considering the quite moderate budget that it had, it looks far more of a budgeted film than what it actually is. The casting of Patel is inspired. And the ra- around him, the support from Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton, Sean Harris, Ralph Innocent, and more, all ably prop up the film. The pacing is perfect. The mood is somber and menacing. And as an adaptation of a piece of 14th century prose, it's perfect. And that's where the trouble is. If you're not immersed into the lore and meanderings of the writings that inspired the legends and myths that are associated with Arthurian times, then this is an extremely difficult film to gauge how you're going to react to it. This was, this was a film that wasn't helped by the marketing campaign that made it look akin to films such as Excalibur, which were a lot more adventurous and gung-ho and acceptable to a general audience. It seemed that anyone who knows A24's general output will know what kind of tone their films generally go for and will have known that the trailers weren't selling the right kind of film. 
in the end, the film is far from an adventure and is a journey of the soul as Patel's Gawain, after taking on the challenge of the Green Knight, must a year on journey to face his fate, which inevitably, because of how the Green Knight's test works, will result in him being decapitated. Along the way, his soul is tested by the moments he witnesses on his journey through the land, a land that is starting to fall apart. Arthur's magical realm is starting to cripple around him and Patel is seeing the effects that Arthur's neglect is starting to bring upon this realm until he faces his ultimate test. There's alterations to the to the final act from the events captured in the chivalric romance poem. The themes are the same, though. The sombre nature of the tale remains, as does the manner in which the tale can be interpreted to reflect on a variety of themes and issues. But mostly, however, this is a film that explores mythologies and depicts the less heroic and less glamorous ex- aspects of Arthurian legend. Anyone expecting the sword and the stone is going to be sorely disappointed. I would recommend this to anyone who is as obsessive and immersed in the actual writings of Arthurian legend as I am, or anyone who just loves somber, beautiful-looking films that have a pacing that isn't all about getting to the next fight. It's all about internal monologues and internal, internal analysing of your position within society. I adored Green Knight but I am finding it very hard to recommend to people. Interesting. I think I'm going to have the same problem when I talk about my film, which is The Many Saints of Newark. When I was a kid, guys like me were brought up to follow codes. Antonio Soprano. You're my nephew. I want to do whatever I can to help you. The Many Saints of Newark, in cinemas now. Now, most of you know from the marketing alone that this is a look back into the lives of predominantly the Soprano family and the uh, Moltisanti family. So those expecting a kind of a Phantom Menace-style Tony Soprano origin story, and that's what the marketing has been suggesting, will be severely disappointed. Because as we know, and if you remember The Sopranos well, David Chase just didn't give us uh, a, a story of, uh, of mafioso crime families. He gave us existential riffs. He gave us arty dream sequences. He gave us uh, scenes involving ducks. He gave us scenes of, of pure violence, which were m- mixed with uh, internal agonizing about your place in the world. So, of course, we shouldn't expect something from David Chase, which is to do the easy route. So, initially starting in 1967, the Moltisanti family, who was Christopher, the character of Christopher, uh, his father, Dickie, is who's the main character that we explore. Now, Christopher, as we know, died at the hands of, of Tony Soprano. And it's Christopher who narrates this film from beyond the grave. So the story tells the experience of the family and their turbulence, partly due to... Uh, period accurate racial motivated riots and partly due to the off the rails criminal activity and then we jump into the early 70s where we meet the young tony soprano played by michael gandolfini the son of james gandolfini which is almost like watching a uh, mcu de-aging it's it's <laughs> uncanny as he attends school while feeling the pull to the shadier lifestyle so i went into this as everybody did, expecting a prequel to The Sopranos, which in, in name only it is. 
Chase doesn't not give us those foundations to where the Sopranos came. It's all over it. But the highlight of the story is Dickie Moltisanti, played by Alessandro Nivolo, an, an unseen character, but only referenced in the show. It looks at his rise through the mafioso family and his effects on the people around him. At first, you're kind of thrown into this world and you have to find your footing. Nothing is easily explained, even though Christopher's From the Beyond the Grave narration sets up the story to it. It weaves in and out of actual real history and it weaves in and out of different members. And it takes some time to find your feet. It's very, very vignette very, very much short scenes cross-cut with, between all these characters, stuffed with characters, stuffed with period music uh, and and stuffed with, with dialogue. And not all of it lands. Then there's a change where the story jumps forward and we meet the very young Tony during his, his high school years. And to the second half of the film is where it came alive for me. And at that point, I became more invested in it. And I was truly, truly disappointed at, at one point of the film thinking... I'm not getting this. Is it me? Uh, and then there are elements that that pave the way as yet to come. We're introduced to characters that we know the outcome of their lives, let alone their effect on the series. And and we are given a perspective that we didn't get in The Sopranos. Um, great cast, as said. Uh, a young Michael Gandolfini is is the spitting image of his father. Ray Liotta in two roles stands out. Alessandro Nivolo, who's one of those good-looking guys who never made it into being a leading man. But for me, the standout performance, because it's, it's, it's absolutely uncanny resemblance to the, uh, the actress who played Tony's mother, uh, Livia, is Vera Famaga, who is just absolutely stunning. She's got uh, prosthetics to make her look like, like, her, uh, like the woman who played Tony's mother. And she is ice cold she is unhinged she is uh, uh, dangerous she is is cutting and biting and it, it, it's absolutely perfectly cast so it's a busy film it's busier than the series was it foreshadows some of the events of the movie it's a little bit unbalanced it does offer fan service but once you get through that and you go in to see something original there's plenty of of new and complex storytelling, which offers another side to the Soprano family. Highly recommended, but I do think as this went out in HBO Max, it might work better on a smaller screen. So you've took a bullet for us, Andy. You've seen <laughs> two Melissa McCarthy films. Now I know uh, in last week's show, I did mock. I know you're going to talk about The Starling, of which I have heard good things, but the other film you took a bullet for. Okay, so I've done a double bill of Melissa McCarthy films. So let's start with Super Intelligence, which landed on Sky Movies this week. Why do I do this to myself? Why? Anyway, Melissa McCarthy takes the lead once more in another film from her husband, Ben Falcone. He gave us such greats as Tammy, The Boss, Life of the Party and Thunder Force. In this new alleged comedy, she plays Carol, the most average person on the planet, which a powerful AI decides to study to see if humanity has any value. Manipulating events around her to give her wealth and access to powerful people, the comedy value is, well, lost somewhere in the mess of a film around the concept. Throw in a chunk of celebrity cameos and references, especially James Corden as the voice of the AI, but also playing himself. Double the irritation for half the price. And by the end of this, I hated the world and felt that we, as a society, have clearly gone very, very wrong. And maybe we should be exterminated. I'm not going to dwell on this film. 
But if you're the kind of person who enjoyed Thunder Force, then you will lap up this shoddily directed mess from the same bunch of people. However, if you can actually recite your two times table all the way to ten times two, then you're far too super intelligent for this mind rot. I can't wait to see Falcone's Margie Claws when that lands on Sky eventually. Oh, why do I do this to myself? I do this so that you don't have to. But on the flip side, over on Netflix, we have The Starling. We have Melissa McCarthy again. And you'd think by this point that I hate everything she's done. But much like Adam Sandler, every now and again, she shows what she's actually capable of in a more dramatic role. And so will always be someone who I will keep looking out to see what she's cropping up in. The Starling sees McCarthy play Lily, who after the loss of her daughter is struggling with her own grief whilst trying to continue with some semblance of normal life. Her husband, Jack, played by Chris O'Dowd, was hit heavily by the loss and resides in a psychiatric institution, growing more and more distant from Lily each day. When she decides to tackle her overgrown garden, she discovers a starling has nested nearby and is quite a territorial bird, swooping in to attack her when she steps too close to the tree where the nest is built. As she strives to find a way to rid herself of the bird, she begins speaking with an ex-psychiatrist and now vet, Larry, played by Kevin Klein, who helps her find the purpose again. The concept itself drew me in, and it was a chance to see what McCarthy can do with something a little more heartfelt. For the first 20 minutes, however, it seemed to be leaning too far into typical McCarthy comedy moments. Quirky, clumsy, but then something happened. Namely, Kevin Klein entered the picture, and the story morphed into a rather touching exploration of grief and loss, albeit with a somewhat hallmark movie of the week-esque kind of approach. Whilst the film overall was far from original, and was extremely predictable, I'd be lying if I claimed that I didn't feel for the characters. And McCarthy certainly gave a strong central character, one which felt real and not overdone. And yes, I started welling up towards the end. And whilst I would never consider watching this again, I'm not disappointed to have spent time watching what is a moving journey through depression and grief. Recommended watching. Very rarely do I get to say that with Melissa McCarthy, but recommended watching. So that's the reviews. Anything coming out next week, Andy, that we should uh, stick around for other than Bond, or is that it? (laughs) Well, at the cinemas, there's just Bond. On streaming, there's not a lot that stood out, but there is Judas and the Black Messiah, the true story of FBI informant William O'Neill and his infiltrating of the Black Panther Party to keep tabs on the leader, Chairman Fred Hampton. Stunning performances throughout. Well worth a check. That's on Now TV and Sky. Over on Amazon, two more of the Welcome to the Blumhouse short horrors are released. Bingo Hell, which follows the adventures of a feisty lady struggling with a sinister creature which stalks the inhabitants of a low-income community. And Black as Night, which sees a teenager and her friends fighting a gang of vampires. Both intriguing. Let's hope they're better than the last few outings from the Welcome to the Blumhouse. Yeah, it didn't land for me at all. I got I got bored by episode one and didn't return for any more. Fingers crossed. So you know we've been looking at the MCU's What If on Disney+. Plus. And we've got our review of last week's episode. Whosoever holds this hammer, if it be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. Space, time, reality. It's more than a linear path. It's a prison of endless possibility. Slow down a little bit. There's a few people in the room that don't understand. Not me, I I get it. If time and reality are a construct, what if we could rebuild it? The secrets 
of the multiverse will be revealed. Amazing! What if? Only on Disney Plus. So this time we got a bit of a, a, a palate cleanser when it came to what if. What if Thor was the only child? So basically he grew out. Thor grows up without Loki interfering in his life and also not making him into the man we thought he was. Because in this film, Thor's a party animal. Party Thor is in the house tonight. <laughs> yeah, we get party Thor. And for the majority of this, this was a lot of fun. A much bigger improvement on the previous episode, uh, the Killmonger episode. It was good to hear Chris Hemsworth repeating Thor. We got Natalie Portman back. We got Tom Hiddleston. We got Darcy again, voiced by Kat Dennings, Phil Coulson, uh, Samuel L. Jackson. We even got Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster. Throw in Frank Grillo, Taiki Watiti, Karen Gillan, Jamie Alexander, Seth Green as Howard the Duck, and we had Sutai himself, Clancy Brown, in what has been the lightest of the uh, What If series. So it was just that for me, Andy. It was a, a, a palate cleanser after the disappointing episode. I didn't love it. I just had a good time with it. I thought it was fun. Yeah. I'm starting to see a problem with it, which I'll discuss as we get through, which I think is something that you like and, and I don't. I just thought it was okay. I thought it was just an, an enjoyable half hour and there's nothing wrong with a half hour of fun. And again, the animation was great, especially with the throwbacks too. Uh, almost uh, uh, Warner Brothers uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. Yeah, this episode reminded me of every now and then in the comics of What If, they did What The episodes. Yes. Which was basically, they, they took a silly slant and did ridiculous things. They had things like, you know, what if Aunt May became a herald of Galactus? Oh, yeah, remember Things that like that. Um, and I always enjoyed those occasional diversions because they were daft. They were little palate cleansers. They were... They were allowed the writers and the artists to just have fun and that's what this episode was this episode was just an excuse to have loads of silly hijinks as thor is the ultimate party animal who accidentally trashes every planet that he has a party on until his mum comes along and tells him off and i'd love the silliness of it i love the fact that it threw every character that it could at it to have as much fun how would the duck popping up is always a joy but even like having loki who's no longer because the whole concept was what if thor was an only child basically what if odin instead of having adopted loki and like declared war on the ice giants had have had a kind of peace bond and just left things as they were thor would have grown up to be a party rebel and loki would have grown up as an ice giant and the two are bros bros from other mothers as they like to refer to each other and it's it's as though like thor's party energy makes everyone love each other but also makes everything fall apart around him. I loved the daftness. Like you say, the Looney Tunes kind of aspect of the fights when Captain Marvel punches Thor from one continent to the other and you see the world map with names of the countries on the map. It knows it's silly. It leans into the silly. It has fun. And then, right on the very last scene, it throws in a little, oh, there's something bigger happening. And it does a tease that something major is happening that might link all the what-ifs together. You see, that's where I have, uh, have a problem with this series. I, my favourite episodes have been the ones which stand alone. And the fact that they are doing what the, the, the MCU does across the movies is that they, they're building to something bigger. 
which is um, which is okay. But I don't think every story needs that. I don't think every every story has to have a, a bigger revelation or a continuity to it. I like the idea of, of the standalone ones. Those have been the best episodes, uh, and those are the ones that I've got the most out of. But uh, uh, I, I agree with you on one thing. This was fun, a much enjoyable fun, and that's what I got out of it, and that's what I enjoyed with it. We'll be back next week to tell you about this week's What If. And that, sadly, dear listeners, is about it for this week. We are done. But before we go, let's talk about our neat things, which is to say, what is the thing that Andy and I have enjoyed the most over the last week? What have we seen, read, heard, ate, you name it? What is our neat thing for the week? Andy? Well, my one, I I wasn't expecting much from it. I'll be honest. When Sky said that they were going to be bringing back a very popular game show that got cancelled on BBC, oh, going back a good decade almost now, I was like, has it had its time? Had it outstayed its welcome? Do we need it back? But never mind the Buzzcocks started up this week on Sky and boy, I fell in love with the whole format again. Greg Davies is hosting now. Noel Fielding is opposite Daisy May Cooper. And also a regular on the show is Jamali Maddox. And the energy of the original show is still there. The fun hijinks that they're having in a pop music quiz is still there. And the look of bewilderment and bafflement on some of the guests is still there. Yes, never mind the Buzzcocks is back. And it makes me think, why did the BBC stop it in the first place? If it can still be this good. I had a blast. For half an hour, I was sat chuckling at what is a simple but fun panel show that doesn't take itself seriously. All the famous rounds are still in there with some slight twists and tweaks to some of the format, but everything is still there. The comedy's there, and Greg Davies is a great new host for it. He um, guest-hosted one or two episodes over the years when they were struggling to find a permanent person to populate the seat. He's really made it his own in this start for the new series. I'm going to be tuning in every week to watch Nevermind the Buzzcocks and have a bit of my music, pop trivia, fun. Okay, that's your neat thing. My neat thing came out of me not watching Green Knight last night. We'd been to the movies to see the Sopranos prequel, for want of a better term, and we came back, we put the TV on with every intent of watching the Green Knight, but suddenly got intrigued by Only Murders in the Building, starring Steve Martin, Selena Gomez and Martin Short. This is a fantastic little half-hour series on Disney+. Plus. Set in New York, set in a one of those uh, um, apartment blocks where all the neighbours basically don't know each other. We meet uh, Steve Martin, who is uh, an ex-actor who played a cop on TV. We meet Martin Short, who is uh, a floundering but flamboyant theatrical uh, director whose life hasn't gone the way out of it. And we meet... Selena Gomez, whose life is at this stage into the series quite intriguing as to what she is. This unlikely trio are all involved in a podcast about murders until an actual murder happens in their apartment block and the three decide to become sleuths. And that's the premise so far. Only a few episodes in, but boy, do I really, really like it. I mean, Martin Short and Steve Martin always work so well. Uh, together they've got just a, a great on-screen rapport as they've been friends for many many years and that shows uh bringing into this selena gomez as this um weird 
20-something neighbour, Mabel, who perhaps knows more than she's so far let on to. It's just a delight. It's one of those where the laughs come and the drama comes at the same time and is clever enough to give you some kind of a, a, an insight into the world at large. I'm two episodes in. I tell you what, by the end of the week, I will have seen every single one of this. An absolute delight as a series. And that's it. We're done. We'll be back next week where we will be reviewing Bond and hopefully we'll give you some kind of spoiler-free insight into where the 007 franchise is going. Andy, anything planned for the week? It's just Bond, isn't it? It's Bond, Bond, Bond. Bond, Bond, Bond. Well, I'll be joining you for that screening. So we'll see you next week. Take care. It's always a pleasure. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. And shocking. Simply shocking. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.